As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. And today I'm reintroducing you to a show that Tom and I recorded in 2014. The history of Tompkins Square Park in the East Village. Now, since the last show was about Central Park with the theme of who gets to use the park, I thought I'd share this story of a very different park. But the real surprise here is that this show ties right into an all-new two-part episode coming in September. The first part coming at you next week. Tompkins Square Park is the heart and soul of the East Village. This was not a park designed for the service of the upper classes in the mid-19th century. And for many decades, this was the largest outdoor space in the Lower East Side. And because of that, it's not only been a place of relaxation, it's also been a place for people to voice their dissent. It's become a most rebellious little place over the decades. And this story is a tale of vice presidents and labor unions and drag queens and punks. And since we recorded this show in 2014, the park has seen some additional clashes, particularly in the post-COVID pandemic era. Clashes which you'll hear parallel some of those older conflicts. Now for updates on other news and recent history about Tompkins Square Park, I suggest you visit the blogs Evie Grieve and Vanishing New York. And now, enjoy the show, and I'll see you next week with a direct tie-in to this subject. Lazy days, staying indoors in the dark, watching the maze out there in Tompkins Square Wow, that that's really dreamy, Greg. It's Very sort of groovy, right? And it blasts us right into Tompkins Square of the 1960s, I'm taking it? Yeah, so that was uh, recorded in 1967 by a band called the Chameleon Church. The drummer of the band later decided that he was better at comedy. A man named Chevy Chase no. performed in the Chameleon Church. That was Chevy singing? 
No, I think he was in the, the keyboardist drummer. Oh. And who knows what else they were doing, you know, during the recording of that particular song. But that was Tompkins Square Park. Uh, now, of course, that's that song is a very psychedelic, somewhat trippy. We are going to be a little bit more literal in our descriptions of the park here. Tom, situate the park uh, for the listeners who aren't that familiar, and let's explore that name also. Okay, so the the park itself, it's a lovely, leafy old park that's located in Manhattan's East Village. It's situated between avenues A and B, and is bordered to the north by East 10th Street and in the south by East 7th. I don't know about you, Greg, but when I think about Tompkins Square Park... I imagine it's towering old elm trees, some mm-hmm. of which are more than 100 years old. Right. The winding paths lined with park benches, uh, perfect for hanging out, reading, people watching. Mm-hmm. The green in the center, usually filled with people picnicking, reading, sunbathing, etc. And of course, it's famous dog run, mm-hmm. or more specifically, two of them, one for the big guys and one for the <laughs> little dogs. I think of Tompkins Square Park almost more for what's goes on around Tompkins Square Park because it really is the center of thriving East Village culture. And since we moved here in the 1990s, Mm -hmm. that park has a real sharp identity to me. Right. Of course, there's St. Mark's Place, 8th Street, that butts right into the Avenue A side of the park. Mm -hmm. And so that brings a lot of traffic and fun. And in the park, we should also mention the recreational things that are happening. People are playing handball and basketball. There's a small swimming pool. And there are chess players in the lower southwest corner of the park. So there's a lot of activity going on. The park has a very unique name. Many squares, like Madison and Washington, those are named after U.S. presidents. Right, or Union Square. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. But Tompkins is a little bit different, slightly more obscure, but still has a federal connection here. Yes, Daniel Tompkins was born in 1774 in Scarsdale, up in Westchester County, and he became the fourth governor of New York State in 1807. Tompkins himself went on to even greater things than the New York governor. In the election of 1816, he ran and won as the U.S. vice president on the ticket with James Monroe, serving as the vice president from 1817 until 1825. In his second term as as vice president, things take kind of a sad turn because he became alcoholic, ended up resigning as vice president just three months, 99 days after resigning in 1825. He died on June 11th, 1825, and he's buried appropriately enough in St. Mark's in the Bowery, just a couple blocks away from Tompkins Square Park. But the park wouldn't really be created properly until the 1830s. So this is several. So several years after he died is when his name was applied to the park. Right. It was not an immediate memorial to the man. But I'm going to take us back a little bit further because I think it's very fascinating to to see what was actually here before a park. What was here before even the whole East Village? I'm assuming that it was somebody's farm. That's right. It's of course. Peter Stuyvesant, uh-huh. uh, this whole area, as we've mentioned in a few podcasts before, that the whole almost entire area of today's East Village, much of that land was owned by Peter Stuyvesant and the Stuyvesant family for right. several generations. Peter Stuyvesant, of course, was the director general of Dutch New Amsterdam from 1647 until the colony was taken over by the British in 1664. Mm-hmm. He settled back in the old Dutch farms here on the Bowery Row, and of course lived here even after the British named the whole region New York. And when you say lived here, you mean lived... 
in the in his farm area, in the Bowery Farm area, which was this large s- stretch of land, which comprises most of the East Village today. Basically, from Fifth Street all the way up to around Twentieth Street, Bowery Road, today's Bowery, and everything east to the water. Now, where specifically where today's Tompkins Square Park is, it was actually at the edge of a large salt marsh filled with turtles. Apparently, this was in the early days a fine place to go hunting for snipe. Oh, <laughs> you, that's where you'd get your snipe. You get your snipe, you go over to the salt marshes here. It actually took on the name of Stuyvesant and is often called in the old history books called the Stuyvesant Meadows. Mm-hmm. There are even tiny brooks that fed into the East River here. It's amazing to think of just a low-lying land that was, frankly, not very useful. And this marsh is bigger than, than Tompkins Square Park, obviously. It oh, was yeah, the yeah. whole area. It was really the whole area just sort of like sloping into almost into the East River. Throughout generations of Stuyvesants, their farmland expanded and then slowly got sold off as the city began moving from the south tip of Manhattan. Fast forward to the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, which was the far-reaching proposal that basically set the modern map of Manhattan that defined all the modern city blocks. There aren't a lot of like parks that were planned in this original plan. Although they did put in a couple large parks or market grounds. You're totally right. For instance, up where Madison Square Park is today was once the parade ground, which that got reduced to become the park that it is today. Over here, where Tompkins Square is, they actually planned a marketplace. According to the original plan, quote, The place selected for this purpose is a salt marsh, and from that circumstance, of inferior price than other soil. The matter dug from a large canal through the middle for the admission of market boats will give due elevation and solidity to the side, and in a space of more than 3,000 feet long and upwards of 800 feet wide, there will be sufficient room for carts and wagons without incommoding those whose businesses or curiosity may induce them to attend it. So the city planners at the beginning thought that this is where all New Yorkers were going to come to sell their wares... And even take advantage of the fact that it was a salt marsh because it would make it easier for the boats to it's get It's actually a very, very intelligent plan. Farmers from Long Island could take their boats over, cattle from Upper Manhattan, vendors of all stripes could make it here. Now, this didn't quite happen, of course, for various reasons, one of them being that the west side of Manhattan became more convenient due to the arrival of the railroad by the 1830s, and so it was around... And even the Erie Canal and the Hudson River. Oh, absolutely. So because of that, the open-air markets tended towards the west side of the island, not so much the east side. Also, I have to say that by the 1820s, land became a little bit more valuable around here on the east side. The city filled in these marshy meadows, so goodbye to the snipes and the turtles. Mm. They packed it in with landfill taken from many of the hills that they leveled in the interior of the island. So there would be like Bayard's Mount and all these other large hills that they would level those, take that earth and fill it in over here in the East Village. Now, you had mentioned that this area was becoming more valuable, but it was my understanding that the area around here was actually 
not nearly as valuable as things that were more a, a couple blocks west of here. It's valuable for the other thing that they added here, which was they extended the shoreline and then built docks and piers uh-huh. along here because here along the East River then became the center of shipping and industry and shipbuilding. So it became valuable for, for industry. For industry, yes. Right, but in terms of fashionable residences and things, those were being built a little a bit further oh, west sure, around sure. Bond Street, around Washington Square and such. Right. The whole area, in fact, was called the Dry Dock District because of all of the piers that were built in the shipbuilding and then also the housing that would serve the laborers who would then work on those piers. Uh-huh. So the Dry Dock District was the first name of this area. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.
you can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. I'm hearing a lot about construction around uh-huh. here, but what about the square? So interestingly about the 1830s, this is also a, a, like a, gr- a great period for the construction and the idea of public grounds and public parks, you know. In the 1830s, there were only really five squares in all of Manhattan, including Union Square, which was properly renovated in 1832. What became Washington Square Park, which was this military parade ground from the 1820s, And a few others were just beginning to be built, including a a private park, Gramercy Park, and Madison Square. So people are starting to to understand that that you can't pack in all these people without some a place to breathe, a place for them to go and to congregate. So because this land was already kind of level and was planned to be a marketplace, the city officially bought this particular area in June of 1834 for $93,000. In doing so, they then created the present borders of the park and then placed a fence around it. It's hard for me to even imagine that Tompkins Square Park is that old. Mm. You know, it does. Eighteen thirty-four. Yes, it seems so. It seems so of a different rhythm than the other parks. That, but it's actually as old as all of these other more tonier parks. And they bought this land from the Stuyvesant family. Yes. And then after they bought it, they then named it after, of course, the former vice president, Daniel Tompkins, at this time. What I think is also interesting is that the city imagined that opening up this new public park in 1834 would encourage more affluent housing to be developed around it, because that had happened in other instances with public parks. People wanted to build nice residences around it. It opened in 1834. Unfortunately, there was a financial panic in 1837, which created all kinds of shortages in food and and joblessness as well. It slowed the housing market as well considerably. And I think it changed, in in a sense, the types of places that we're building. Mm -hmm. This area would not become this elegant area, but rather the new constructions would be far more working class. And that would only speed up and become heightened by the waves of immigration that would be hitting the city. Right. So it's interesting how these things happen right next to each other. So the housing market is depressed right around the time that mass immigration really starts happening in New York, beginning in the 1840s with two major groups, the Irish and the German immigrants. And when you say mass, if we just look at the population of New York in 1820, it's 120,000. 40 years later in 1860, it's 800,000 people, half of whom were born in another country. Mm-hmm. So where, where are these thousands and thousands of people going to live? Now, Hundreds of now you know, people tend, especially if you don't know anyone you, and you want people this, of similar culture, you, you tend to flock around the sort of same neighborhoods. The Irish, for instance, would reside a little bit further south of here around the Five Points neighborhood, although there would be, of course, several other different neighborhoods that would be predominantly Irish. The Germans would move to sort of around the borders of today's East Village. This area would eventually be called Little Germany or Klein Deutschland, even by 1845, Tom. Did you know that this was, it was the largest German neighborhood in New York, but one of the largest in America? 
As a result, of course, Tompkins Square being adjacent to this German neighborhood, it began to take the character. It would be a park that would cater to a lot of German functions, a lot of German events. It would even be nicknamed Weissgarten. Weissgarten? Uh, by the uh, early German residents of this area. On, like, on a Sunday afternoon, for instance, you might uh, swing by here and see hundreds of Germans playing you know, traditional music, enjoying food and beer here in the park. So obviously, this is a far cry from the sort of elegant strolling gardens. It sounds like a fun place, all these, you know, German singing, German music, and not just in the park, but around the park, you also had uh, breweries Mm -hmm. and beer gardens, I'm sure, and German factories and workshops and things like that. And and churches and places for the community to gather was an incredibly thriving German neighborhood here for decades. Now, what's also interesting about Tompkins Square is because it was the only real open space, it happened to appeal to rallies and for like, you know, if you wanted to have larger groups of people. So just didn't have that many places in New York. So it soon began to attract rallies that were specifically catered to the rising immigrant contingent that attracted political organizations, would sometimes get a little out of control. An early example of this was in 1857, when there was another financial panic, which caused more food shortages and unemployment. Oh, these financial panics. That's just a dot through history. Nothing Uh has changed. Turns left turns, yes. Protesters gathered in the park on several days in November of 1857, and some even carried off benches in the park to burn as firewood because they didn't have adequate wood for, for heat. It's interesting to think that the National Guard, the regiment, was still in the park. So there was also a training ground for the Mm. 7th Regiment here in the park alongside benches for people to stroll and hang out. Apartments that were facing the park were more expensive than those that were just on the side streets lined with other tenement buildings. In the 1860s, a tenement facing the park went for... Mm -hmm. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Give it to me. $115 a year. That would be $9.58 a month. Or like, uh, which would today be like one minute, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> Although, of course, many of these apartments didn't have conveniences that we would think of as absolutely vital today, such as running water and sure, proper right. sewage and things like that. It was in the early 1860s that the city would gussy up the park quite a bit. They planted big, handsome trees around it, installed a very nice central fountain, new shrubs and flowers, and they gave it new benches uh, to replace... (laughs) That, that, That could not be more easily carried off for firewood, I assume. Right. Unfortunately, just a few years later in 1866... The state legislature forced the city to rip it all up to create a larger parade ground for the 7th Regiment. So, I mean, they're still battling with the the proper usage of public space here because they obviously did need it for more official purposes. Right. This was a city just after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. People were obviously nervous about the city's security. That called for the removal of some of those trees that had just been planted. However, some sycamore trees escaped the buzzsaw, Mm -hmm. notably two on East 10th Street and one on Avenue A and 9th Street. They're still with us. They're still there. Yeah, if you look for these really big old sycamore trees, you can find them. And I have to say, I have to just preface this because as we go forward, trees play a really important role in Tompkins Square Park, almost more than any other park of this size. 
The 1870s brought with it another financial panic, <laughs> the, the Panic of 1873. Again, high unemployment, high immigration at the same time in New York, which made a lot of immigrants scapegoats. Because people always looked at the immigrants as being cheap labor and taking their jobs. And many of the people who were the laborers were beginning to organize for the first time and make demands of the government, demand that they would get some kind of social relief for the high cost of rent and for the high cost of food. And they went further than just relief now. They were demanding that there would be public works projects that didn't exploit them as laborers. And, and where would these people meet? Where would these, where would they hold rallies? Well, well, here at Tompkins Square, obviously, because again, it's not one of these parks that is surrounded by wealthy residences, so they would have less pressure to meet here. I mean, there would be... One, the people know. lived all around right, it. Right, right. So it was on January 13th, 1874, that one of these groups called the Committee of Safety, who had held a demonstration in Union Square just a week before that attracted a thousand people, decided to hold another rally in Tompkins Square. Mm -hmm. They even went out uh, and got a permit for it because they were planning to march from Tompkins Square down to City Hall to make demands for these public works projects. The night before the rally happened, the police department put pressure on the Parks Department to revoke the permit. Some machinations to prevent this from happening and prevent them from gathering. And weirdly, that you know, weird that that would happen just the night before. So people, of course, showed up. There were thousands of people on January 13th. 7,000 people poured into Tompkins Square Park, unaware of the fact that the permit had been revoked the night before. And they were not alone. There were about 1,600 policemen around the park and in the area around the different streets. By 10 a.m., the police officers rushed in, attacking the crowds rather indiscriminately and creating panic all over the area. 46 people would be arrested, connected to but, this event, and countless people were injured because of this. Total mayhem, and it's unimaginable to think about this, although I suppose... Is it? That- really? I mean, I, I think it's just the opposite. It sounds like I could be describing an event that happened just a couple years ago. <laughs> I guess that's right. I guess In I'm, Tompkins Square. I guess I'm thinking of the math, the thousands, the thousands of police officers. It's, it's chilling, This was a moment where people who had become used to showing up in Tompkins Square Park to express themselves politically felt kind of duped by the authorities and felt in some ways a little less secure about their ability to be able to air their grievances without worry of without repercussions. So is the state militia still here? So, I, I mean, they obviously weren't around for, for this, but were they still stationed here when they, ne- when they needed it? They were still training here, but just six months after that panic, more than 2,000 people gathered in the park to express their outrage and to reclaim the park politically and as public space. And they were demanding of the government to give it back to them and, and to basically kick out the militia and the, and the training ground. Eventually, because people were well organized and were starting to exert more political muscle mm-hmm. as Germans gathered political steam, as they, in and the they city, became wealthier. Right. The state legislature started to give in to this pressure and decided to hand over half of the land to the people mm-hmm. to make it a parkland and half of it as a military training ground. So that was going to be the new normal. And in fact, <laughs> they hired Frederick Law Olmsted, who was, you know, famous at this point for for, for Central and for Central and Prospect Parks right. amongst others. Right. He was hired to to draw up these plans and so he has a plan 
for the military training ground in the middle and a park to the north and a park to the south. However, that got bogged down <laughs> into like years of political fighting about who would actually do the, the construction and the redevelopment of the park. Well, we're talking 1870s here with mm-hmm. the era of Boss Tweed and, and Tammany Hall and corruption. Kraft. So every project took decades during this period. Right. So that's not surprising. Luckily, this only took a couple of years, but it was years of the park being kind of in a quasi state of semi-development. It was a huge mess. So what was the eventual end result? Because obviously we have no military presence there today. Right. Well, the Department of Public Parks finally gave in to public pressure, and the state legislature would pass in 1878 a law that turned all 10 acres of the park back over to the people and basically kicked out the 7th Regiment. That required a lot of new replanting. 450 trees were planted, many of which are still with us, so a lot of those old trees go back to this replanting in the late 1870s. From this late 1870s, 1880s period. Amazing. And they would put in some new fountains, a music pavilion in the center, drinking fountains, and notably 160 gas lamps to light the park at night. It reopened in the summer of 1879 with great celebration, great singing in English and German Mm -hmm. as kind of more elegant Tompkins Square Park, which begs the question... What What? happened? (laughs) We'll let you in on that secret after the commercial break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. So, Greg, when I look at the plans of this original park, or mm-hmm. this park in the, in the late 1800s, I don't see the same park that we visit today, with that big corridor stretching along 9th Street from Avenue A to Avenue B, and the playgrounds. So some big changes came to Tompkins Square Park in the 20th century, because Tompkins Square actually became a test case for a new style of park, which was a park that was associated with playgrounds. Progressives of the period were concerned that poor children, especially, didn't have a place to play except in the street, playing stickball. And of course, that's quite dangerous. And Although it's weirdly romanticized now, it was quite dangerous. Well, it's very dangerous. And also, it's just like it's inconvenient for travel. There's like, anyway, it's not right. <laughs> it's not the right place for kids to play. 
1898, the Outdoor Recreation League was formed, led by Lillian Wald of the Henry Street Settlement. And These were progressive movements to get kids out of the street. Yes, and have changed, transformed the city, um, worked with the city to create new playgrounds in various parks. So the very first playgrounds were actually in some of these experimental parks, including one here at Tompkins Square. So the focus then shifts now. The the focus of Tompkins Square becomes a little bit more children-centric. In in fact, various organizations move their headquarters to around Tompkins Square Park, including the Boys Club of America, which is still there on Caddy Corner to the park on 10th Street and Avenue A. Now, going forward into 1936... I have to bring up Parks Commissioner Robert Moses. Um, who, Absolutely, I was hoping he'd make <laughs> some appearance. And who brings in? Who brings his imprint into the park? He, of course, changed the very shape of the park. It is because of Moses and their plans that two thirds of the park, the the part below Ninth Street from Ninth Street to Seventh Street, mm-hmm. you know, has a more traditional with a circular area in the middle with like undulating paths and all the grass Which I'm imagining is better for adults. That's better for adults. But then at the 9th Street entrance, it was actually a gigantic path was then carved through it a little bit larger than any other walkway that then separates the northern portion of the park, which then now is all playgrounds and a refreshment station so the, so the recreation is divided from just the the strolling and the leisure. Right. So thus the Ninth Street Corridor mm-hmm. was created. Now a new change comes to the neighborhood and that will then, of course, affect Tompkins Square in the same way that the population changes have done so in the past. This would be the artistic and underground scene. We might use shorthand and call them the Bohemians that would move in. This is in direct correlation to what's happening further west around Washington Square Park, of course, but distinct because people still consider this part of the Lower East Side to be of a working class population. Eventually, of course, to distinguish it, a new name was applied here, the East Village, Tompkins Square, of course, would be the heart of this in the same way that Washington Square would be a heart of, of Greenwich Village. Now, when you talked about the working class neighborhoods, you're also in the 1950s here around the park. We're also dealing with a shift in immigration again. So, I mean, when last we talked about population, we we're talking about Germans living in this area. And they're, for the most part, long gone. Right. right. This is no longer little Deutschland. No. By the 1950s, the neighborhood saw an influx of Hispanic, uh, Puerto Rican, African-American residents moving in. In 1966, the city built a bandshell here, which, of course, then became immediately a scene for all sorts of outdoor concerts. Because if you're thinking bohemian scene, Mm -hmm. 1960s, of course, you have outdoor concerts here at the bandshell by bands like the Grateful Dead. Charles Mingus, and all sorts of bands that would be associated with the counterculture of uh, American youth. It was also from the band shell in the 1960s that there would be speakers and demonstrations holding anti-Vietnam, anti-war protests. Mm -hmm. But another intriguing element of what's born in the counterculture here uh, also arise because Tompkins Square is part of the history of, of a particular religious movement. And which one would that be? Uh, and thus I introduce to you Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhubhata. 
who is the proponent of the Eastern spiritual belief Gaudaya Vashana. In 1966, the Swami Prabhupada arrived in New York to teach his spiritual ideas to a group, of course, of mostly young Bohemians who were very open-minded, of course, to this very new train of thought. Prabhupada had a small studio in the Bowery and eventually set up his official place of spiritual contemplation at 26th Second Avenue. Prabhupada believed in a form of spiritual understanding and a power of chanting the name of God, which would be Hare Krishna. Mm -hmm. So the American Hare Krishna movement began here at his place of worship at Second Avenue. Amongst his small group of followers here at the time was the writer Allen Ginsberg. Allen accompanied his spiritual leader on October 19th of 1966 when the group marched over to Tomquin Square Park and gathered in front of the very central elm tree. And it was here that they began chanting, singing, and celebrating. And it became a sort of a draw for the press. And so it made all the newspapers. And this is sort of the birth date, if you will, of the modern Hare Krishna movement. To this day, the Hare Krishna tree here in the middle of the park is a religious destination. But not everything was quite so peaceful. Some residents around the park were actually becoming kind of irritated uh, with the nonstop music and partying that was happening in the park. Uh, they called the police Memorial Day of 1967 uh, because they were annoyed by the, the conga drums that wouldn't stop. And the police came and attacked a group of musicians who were playing their drums in the park. And tensions began to heat up. So that's how we end the 60s and even into <laughs> mm-hmm. the 70s and moving into the 80s. Many people would call it an unsafe park. Other people, especially if you're of a certain age, would look at this as the only park you would want to go to because it, you know, it's where other young people were hanging out. It's where there's music. It's where all of the... The punk scene in the East Village Mm -hmm. that was really blossoming in the 70s and 80s found kind of a home base here. Mm -hmm. And of course, drug use was rampant in the Mm -hmm. park. So... And another critical element to understanding Tompkins Square Park in the 1980s would be the people who found home in the park. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a very contentious issue that many of our listeners might have their own opinions about. When we talk about the homeless in the park, many people would take issue with the term even homeless in the park because people considered those living in the park to be residents of the park. And this, you know, the city didn't have a lot of money at this particular time. New York so, was broke. Yeah, so there was no other option for many of these people. Um, many found this a welcoming place. And so as the city began to clean up, there was, of course, a conflict here between those who had resided here and, you know, the larger purposes of the city. And it was into this space in 1984 that Lady Bunny. A now legendary <laughs> drag queen would stumble out of the the Pyramid Club right uh, across the street on Avenue A with a couple of her drag queen friends in 1984 at the end of the summer and stumbling into the park and putting on an impromptu drag show in Tompkins Square Park for anybody who cared <laughs> to attend at that moment. It was obviously well received because Bunny would go on to make this an annual event that would sort of cap off the gay summer season. Uh, around Labor Day every year uh-huh. in the park. And was- and she named this event Wigstock. It's interesting that like a hundred years before, you would have hundreds of Germans singing and dancing, and then 100 <laughs> years later, it's, Lady been, Bunny. it's been transformed into a, a very tall person in a large blonde wig. Right. And pumps. And pumps. 
there might have been people in pumps and large blonde hair a hundred years before. <laughs> That's true. As Wigstock became more fabulous and more famous, it moved on to bigger spaces. It moved on to Union Square and then over to the Hudson River. But it returned to Tompkins Square Park in 2003 and four and five as part of the Howell Festival. This sounds fun and jovial, whimsical. Yes, and we shouldn't, because we're, we're focusing on the history of Tompkins Square Park, a lot of it is about riots and protests and things like that. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Tompkins Square Park in the 70s and 80s and 90s was fun. You know, great there was a music, lot yes. of fun. There was great music. There was celebration. There was counterculture. And that's, I think, what the spirit of that dominated uh, Tompkins Square in this period. And for the most, and for the most part, is that's what it should be identified with. But right. there was, you know, this constant that's- clash with the city. Obviously, people were talking about the fact that Tompkins Square Park was a place where there was rampant drug use where the, there was a significant, let's say, homeless population, people living in the park, this was not something that many people wanted to see. Uh, other residents in the city, residents around it, the area was divided into camps who believed that this was good for the neighborhood because it reflected a certain spirit and mm-hmm. diversity of the neighborhood and energy, and others who said, we have to clean this up. It's a mess. It's dangerous. It's it's drug-filled. It's Because because that's what was, that was being, quote-unquote, cleaned up in the other parks of right. New York City. So they attempted that here as well. And one of the ways that they were going to try to clean up the park was to enforce closing hours. Because if you could say that the park is closed... Everybody had to get out of the park. Obviously, nobody could sleep nobody there. Could sleep there, right. So they tried that August 6th to 7th, the night of August 6th, 1988. The police tried to clear the park. At the same time, there were protesters who had gathered to protect the park. The police moved in. Next thing you knew, there were police clubs swinging. Bottles were flying. There was chaos, and 44 people were hurt. This is a period, and this is an actual event that was videotaped by a guy nearby on his stoop who ended up getting beat up while he was videotaping it. So this is something that's very much still in the collective memory of the neighborhood. Right. The police failed at enforcing this curfew. That was in 88. They would continue to drive in the following years, which came to a head Memorial Day of 1991, where the police moved in after a concert had just finished in the bandshell. Rumors started surfacing that somebody uh, had been attacked by the police in the park along Avenue A. Police cars got pummeled by bottles uh, and all kinds of people got beat up and arrested. So that was the Memorial Day riot of 1991, just Memorial Day. So just a few days later on June 3rd at 530 in the morning, 300 police officers surrounded the park and moved in, closing it down and boarding it up. Of course, there were people in there mm-hmm. sleeping. They were removed from the park. Some people in the neighborhood would say that the police did the right thing. However, others considered the people who were removed to be residents and saw their removal as an outrage and as another milestone of the city becoming a wealthier and less interesting police state. And so from Memorial Day of 91 forward, this is like blocked off with plywood The next summer, so the summer of 1992, the plywood would be taken down and the park would reopen as a beautiful park with one major change. And I assume, as there is no band shell there today, that they removed it at this period. Yes. Gone was a band shell, which had been 
really instrumental, can I say? <laughs> if you in, will. In the improvised musical concerts that would fill the park, you can still have concerts, obviously, and there are lots of performances and concerts that happen in the park today, but you need to have a permit for the most part. And you need to rent one of their expensive mm-hmm. stages. So something had been taken away. A little bit of the spirit of the park was taken down with the the band shell, I Destroyed. think. Destroyed. And another major change is that the park closes now. So the curfew that the police couldn't really enforce before, once it reopened, it, it had somehow become a non-issue. Uh, nobody spends a night in the park anymore. You can't. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's... A, a reflection of the fact that the neighborhood has become so much more expensive now through gentrification, and it changes the feel of the park. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it feels much more peaceful. But I do wonder what we have lost by evicting the unrest and the dissent from the park. And we haven't just evicted them from the park. The squats, community gardens in right. the neighborhood are gone. Well, this right? is a bigger, bigger issue. I mean, it just reflected here in Tompkins Square because it's kind of where it started to happen. The renovation into something more quite acceptable. What, what do we lose in this? So instead of leaving us on this uncertain, some would say quite depressing tone here. Well, no, it's a beautiful place. <laughs> you know, so in telling the history here, there's a few, you know, there's a few significant things in the park that we didn't mention. So I just wanted to give us like a very, very quick five-minute stroll through the park here just to like Please. point out things that you can see around the park and in the park. So if we started on the north side of the park, on, on the 10th Street side, you may notice that the buildings along this area are maybe a touch more fancy than the on the other sides. Mm-hmm. Of course, I would say much more fancy, I'll be honest. This street, believe it or not, is its own historic district, the East 10th Street Historic District. And it's right along here. It's It goes from Avenue A to Avenue B. So mm-hmm. just this one block. And you could just sit there for days and just take gorgeous pictures of all the buildings up up along the sides here, including, of course, the library that was built here in 1904. It was uh, using funds from Andrew Carnegie. It was one of New York's first public libraries. And if you go inside up to the second floor and the children's floor, mm-hmm. you can have a great view out to the entire park oh, and right, down to right. the courts and things like that. Yeah. So after you visit the library, go to the northeast corner. I don't, I can't remember what, what establishment is there today, but for during the 90s and for much, much of the aughts, it was a place called the Life Cafe. And it was at this spot that one of its former employees, a man named Jonathan Larson, who was a a playwright and a songwriter took inspiration and ended up writing the musical Rent. Right. He wrote it in the 90s and it opened on Broadway in 96 after debuting at the New York Theater Workshop in the East Village. So if you hang a right here, go down Avenue B just a little bit, um, you'll see a handsome brownstone across the street that is probably the most famous building that surrounds Tompkins Square Park. This is the Charlie Parker residence, which is named for the iconic jazz musician who lived here from 1950 to 1954. But the building itself is pretty important and was built in 1849. It's in the National Register of Historic Places. The Ninth Avenue Corridor, that gigantic right. pathway go into the park from this period and walk towards the center of the park on your way on the left you'll see a bunch of little doggies that is the massive dog park on a sunday afternoon there's nothing more enjoyable than sitting and watching the dogs play around halloween this is the focal point of the annual halloween dog parade so if you want to see an animal dressed like 
Lady Gaga, for instance. Or Little Orphan Annie. <laughs> come to the park. Now, when you get to the middle of the Ninth Street corridor here, um, you'll see a flagpole, which is officially the Ukrainian-American flagstaff. Instead of turning into the park, turn right through this Robert Moses era refreshment stand. On the other side of it is a small monument that was built to the victims of the General Slocum steamship disaster, which was the explosion of a vessel in the East Village on June 15th, 1904, which killed 1,021 people that were most mostly women and children. But in terms of the park, that particular disaster had a changing effect on the entire neighborhood, as it was because of this event pretty much that Klein Deutschland dissolved. Most of the families moved away from this area into other German enclaves in New York City. But this is a great place to pay your respects to the victims of that tragedy. Let's go back into the park now, like walk past the flagpole, and you'll see the park paths curving to your left and right. Walk right, because you'll see a funny-looking fountain with a lady standing on top of it, that lady being the goddess Hebe. This is what's called a temperance fountain, and they were built in many low-income parks in the 1880s, 1890s. It only served water? It only, yes. It didn't bubble with beer. In fact, it wanted to prevent people from drinking it, reminding people that there were other things to drink. A moralistic monument, if you will. Now, head down to the south west corner of the park now um head down to so the avenue a side the avenue a side and 7th street go down there and you'll see the only statue of a human being that stands in the park it is not of daniel tompkins it is of a man named samuel cox he was a u.s congressman tom from two different states from Ohio in 1856. And then several years later, he carpet-bagged his way to New York City, where then he served in Congress again for 20 years. Interestingly, this statue was entirely funded by New York postal workers because Mr. Cox was a huge proponent of civil service reform. Hmm. So two years after he died in 1891, they funded and erected the statue here in the park. Another notable gentleman stares in at him for across the street on the wall on this great bar called Niagara. Mm -hmm. On the bar, you'll see a mural of the lead singer of The Clash, Joe Strummer. A mural was painted here in 2003. It was briefly destroyed, but then repainted. So you have Joe kind of looking into the park and granting his approval of everything that goes on there. Now, finally... Just walk along the southern edge of the park until you get halfway to the southern entrance into the park. Walk into the entrance where you'll see the stage area. This was where the band shell used to be. And it's the largest area. And still today when people gather in the park, this is the area in which they gather. And where they erect the stages too. Yes. Go to the center of the stage area. Look at that gigantic elm tree that's standing there. Go over Put your arms around it. Just, you know, put your ear to it. Commune with it. For this is the Hare Krishna tree. An absolutely beautiful tree. And you cannot come to Tompkins Square Park without seeing it, without saying hello. So thank you for taking this stroll through Tompkins Square Park with us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.